We are in a course on basic discipleship. This is actually our discovery class that we have been teaching here for the last 30 years. And uh, in the years past, decades past, uh, I taught it every week and, and then eventually was unable to because of multiple services. And some brothers took over for me and I gave them the outlines and gave them the tapes to fill in the outlines. And now I'm filling in the outlines for you so that you have a complete set of notes as you study it. These are the bedrock bottom truths of the Christian faith. And if you have a handle on these and if you're able to teach them to your children, to your grandchildren, to those whom God might entrust you to disciple. In fact, this handout on prayer, this is the fourth of 21 handouts that you'll receive over the next year. This handout would be a great handout for a dad to lead his family with in prayer, just to um, make it a devotional. You could spend several weeks just on this, teaching your children how to pray, and this would be a great thing to do. All right, why don't we bow in prayer and close our eyes and bow our heads. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Father, we thank you that the Word became flesh and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We sang earlier, born is the King of Israel. And yet when He came to Israel, they largely rejected Him at that point in their history. But we are so grateful for the Jewish people that they gave us the Messiah and that you will use this same people to bring him back to the earth where he will rule and reign. You told us to pray for the peace of Israel. In so doing, we are praying, we know, for the return of your son. And we look forward to that glorious day when he will come and all of the promises that you've given, not just to Israel, but to us Gentiles, that they will be fulfilled. Now, Lord, we think of that occasion when the disciples humbly said to you, teach us to pray. And we really want you to teach us to pray and all that that means and encompasses. So tonight we ask that you'd meet us here, that the Spirit of God whom you gave us as a deposit, as an earnest of what you began, that you promised to finish, that tonight he would be our teacher, and that the Word of God would just shine bright in our hearts, that we'd be able to see and understand its truth, and that we would not just be those who hear the Word, but those who will obey it. So we commit our time to you now, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, this is the fourth handout in 21 handouts on this course. Uh, you have the complete handout tonight. We've been going through this for the last uh, several Wednesday nights. 
As you remember, we have six objectives on page one, to understand the nature of prayer, to ascertain if God answers the prayers of non-Christians, to be able to state at least four reasons why we should pray, to discern the different types of prayer, to consider the mechanics of prayer, and then some Bible promises. So Roman numeral one, we talked about what is prayer. Prayer is a conversation between two people who love each other. Prayer is a channel we saw for appropriating God's resources. That was Roman numeral one. Then we looked at Roman numeral two, who can pray? And we saw that primarily the promises for prayer are given to God's people, those who have met God through faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, that always brings up the question, does God answer the prayer of an unbeliever? And Christians kind of categorically say no, but obviously we saw that's not accurate biblically. In fact, most of the texts that deal with God not answering prayer, in fact, all of them that I'm aware of are in reference to His people. No, I should not say that. There are a few where he speaks of the prayer of the wicked, lost people. But God can answer the prayer of a non-Christian, and he does sometimes in the process of bringing them to himself. We saw that we're to pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, that it's not just some magical phrase that we put on the end of a prayer. We saw we should pray with a clean heart, with a forgiving spirit. And then Roman numeral three, we tried to ask and answer, why are we to pray? And we saw, well, one, we're to pray because God is glorified through prayer. It's through prayer that God shapes us into the image of Christ by which we bear fruit, and in this He is glorified. We should pray because God commands us to pray. We saw that He told them a parable showing them at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And He asked that powerful, penetrating question, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? We saw that we should pray because God delights in the prayer of the righteous, that it's hard work, but it's a delight to God for us to meet Him, for us to commune with Him, and we experience that delight. We should pray because prayer changes things. Indeed, God works through prayer. And then last time, we also focused on what should be included in prayer. We saw that there is confessional prayer, there's prayers of thanksgiving, there's prayers of worship, and there's prayer of supplication in intercession. And that's where we left off. So tonight, we are on Roman numeral number five. What are some hindrances to answered prayer? That's where we want to head tonight. We briefly touched on a few of these earlier, but we will delve a little bit deeper, as I promised you earlier in this session. Now, note here, one of the most rewarding experiences for the Christian is to see his prayer answered. Unfortunately, many Christians never stop and consider what it is that might be preventing God from responding to their prayers. Well, first point, unconfessed sin can hinder your prayers. Unconfessed sin. We studied this earlier in the section in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. You remember that verse. It's a verse that's dumped on non-Christians all the time but it's actually written to those who know the Lord. He's writing to believing Israel. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It is not that God cannot hear you, but that physically, so to speak, 
It's kind of like that verse, he remembers our sins no more. Does that mean God has a case of divine amnesia? Obviously not. But he doesn't hold it against you. It's not that God doesn't hear the prayer that you're offering, but he does not hear you in a responsive sense if there is known, unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life. And so the psalmist, likewise, in Psalm 66, 18, echoes this same truth when he writes, if I regard in wickedness in my heart, or you could translate it iniquity, the Lord will not hear. Now look at that word regard. I note here the Hebrew word regard, raha, in Hebrew, not aha, but raha, <laughs> refers to holding on to cherishing something, to harboring something, or to give attention to, or to coddle some sin in your life. If we grow fond of some sin, you can pray with all the passion and excitement that you can muster, but sin will stop your prayers cold and the problem will not be rectified until the sin is confessed. 1 John 1, 9, one of our memory verses, if we confess our sins, God is both faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we see unanswered prayer, we should not immediately assume that what we are asking for is not according to his will. It might be totally in the will of God. It is possible that the reason it might not be answered is due to a sin issue that needs to be addressed. And so we should pray as David did in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. You know, you do the same with your children if you have children in the home. Sometimes they have a legitimate request that you would love to respond to, but you cannot until there's an issue that's addressed or fixed in their life. And God is the same, and, and if we are habitually praying and we're not seeing an answer to prayer, it, there's a possibility that the problem is not with what you're asking for, but an issue of sin in the heart. A delayed answer to our prayer, number eight there, does not mean that God will deny the request, but the delay might be due to sin that needs to be repented of. King David, for nine months, failed to acknowledge his sin to the Lord. And for this reason, God did not answer his prayer until he confessed his sin. So there's two great confessional psalms that deal with David's sin of adultery and really murder. Not just murder of one, but multiple murder, because he was responsible not only for Uriah's death, but the men that were with Uriah. And in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, David recounts his experience of what had happened. All those months had gone by, and it's not until Nathan the prophet comes and confronts him and says, David, the parable I just told is about you. You say, how could he do that? Well, remember, he's on the other side of the new covenant, and there was a hardness of heart. I mean, David had many wives. He had five wives. David would not be considered a Christian today. But there were things that went on under old covenant believers that God allowed because of the hardness of heart, something that uh, they have no idea 
what we are able to realize. And so the standards have been changed, so to speak. I shouldn't say they've been changed, they've been raised in terms of the expectations that God has on his people. So David writes, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Silah, a little Hebrew uh, note. These are sung, remember. It's kind of like pause, think about it. Some of us, we've lived this. There's unconfessed sin and there's a depression. There's a vitality that is lost. There is just a lack of strength spiritually because we've not dealt with it. And David hadn't dealt with it. And God's going to really point it out through his man that he now does through primarily the Spirit of God. I acknowledge my sin to you, that is, I confess it, and my iniquity I did not hide, no excuses. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Salah. Think about it. Pause. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. So there's always an urgency to confession, and and we covered that somewhat in the second handout on maintaining fellowship with God. That repeated unconfessed sin that's prolonged brings the discipline of God, and some brings even severe discipline, even premature death. Uh, B on the handout, an unforgiving spirit can hinder our prayers. Jesus told us this in Mark eleven twenty five: whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Otherwise, our prayers will be hindered. Jesus is reminding us here in Mark eleven twenty five 25, that our prayer for forgiveness will not be honored unless we ourselves practice forgiveness. And again, it goes back to the principles of Isaiah 59 and Psalm 66, 18. You know, there has to be a, a, a vertical clearance and a horizontal clearance. If I'm out of fellowship with my brother, then I'm out of fellowship vertically. And the same implications, the Lord doesn't hear. He hears, but he doesn't hear in terms of responding. Likewise, Jesus said this in Matthew 6.15, but if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. The Lord Jesus did not teach that we earn forgiveness by forgiving others, for this, of course, would be contrary to God's free grace and mercy. However, if we have truly experienced salvation forgiveness, what we call justification, then we will have a disposition to forgive others, just as Jesus illustrated in the parable of the unforgiving servant. And we studied that earlier in this course in Matthew 18. If you meet someone and their continual habitual disposition is to hold grudges and to be an unforgiving person, more than likely they have never met the living God. So there's this balance that we've seen. On the one hand, it's a mark of conversion. On the other hand, it's possible for a Christian to do. 
So uh, we learned earlier that as a general principle, a believer will forgive others, yet it is possible for a believer to withhold forgiveness. And so God commands us to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has al- also has forgiven you, Ephesians 4.32. God teaches us in the above verse that our forgiveness to one another is to be patterned after the forgiveness that Jesus has shown us. I was able to introduce someone to Christ with this verse. I use this in Matthew 18. And I said, as long as I've known you, you have been an unforgiving person. And every time we meet, you tell me about these people that you hate and are angry and bitter over. I said, my bigger concern is your eternal destiny. Because if that's your practice, and yet Paul recognizes, as the Lord's does in the, in the Lord's prayer, that it's possible for a believer. So he's writing to save people, be kind, tender, how, how? Just like, just as God in Christ forgave you. And so sometimes if someone's really ripped you off and wronged you so bad and you can't even believe it, Satan will use that to try to get a foothold in your life. In fact, in the same chapter, he says, be angry, but sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, lest you give the devil an opportunity. And the word opportunity is actually a military term, a beach hold, a foothold, a beachfront that a successful military operation would try to secure. Satan can get a real handle in your life through unforgiveness. And so you want, before the day is over, before the sun goes down, to make sure you've dealt with it. God is commanding us to show the same kindness, tenderhearted, and forgiveness as he showed us because he knows we can withhold it. These verses describe true Christians, reminding us that since we have the capacity to forgive as born-again people, if we refuse to forgive someone else, then we are living in sin and God will not hear and answer our prayers. For our prayers to be effective, our hearts must be clear both vertically with God and horizontally with our neighbor. For Jesus said in Matthew 25, 23 and 24, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. That should be Matthew 5. <laughs> I'm looking at this. That's from the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, if you're, you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Jesus was essentially saying, before you go to God in prayer, do your part to make things right with anyone with whom you have wronged and are at odds at. If after you've gone in humility to make amends with someone, at that point it is up to that individual to receive your apology and to forgive. That's why Paul gives this caveat in Romans chapter 12. If possible, meaning it's not always possible, but if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You can do everything in your power to try to make it right, and some people will still hold bitterness against you for the wrong you've committed against them. But you can know that your heart is clear and clean, 
if you have gone in true sincerity and humility and genuine repentance yourself. And so if you have also been wronged by someone, it is essential that you forgive them, even if they do not take responsibility or your prayers may be hindered. They don't come to you and ask for forgiveness. Are you going to hold a grudge against them? Well, if you do, your prayers will be hindered. Okay, what's another reason why prayer is not answered? See on your outline, an uncaring attitude can hinder our prayers. An uncaring attitude can hinder our prayers. Solomon reminds us in Proverbs 21, 13, he who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. Um, th- uh, though many proverbs tell of poverty caused by laziness and deceit, other proverbs express God's compassion towards the poor. So some people are poor because they're lazy and so on. Some people won't work. And that's why you have to be discerning in helping people. Uh, we used to own a piece of property across the street and They had bought it just before I came to be the pastor, and I was disappointed. I wish they had waited. It was too small. I knew it was too small. I knew we would outgrow it, and uh, we could only have a church capacity of maybe 400 people on that campus over there. It was about seven and a half usable acres. But God, in His grace, you know, provided another piece of property. But there was a gentleman who came, and Young man, he was a beach bum. His hair was so bleached yellow from surfing and everything else, and wanted me to give him money. Well, number one, I never gave money. I did give sometimes uh, food vouchers before we had the food pantry. Never gave money. And then the deal I had with the local grocery store is it couldn't be used for alcohol or cigarettes. And he looked just as healthy as could be. And I said, well, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you $10, but I need you to take this black trash bag and just go through the property and pick up these pine cones. We had these huge pine cones all over the property, and it would take the guy who cut the lawn forever to pick them up or it would destroy his mower. He said, didn't Jesus say if you give, if someone asks that you should give to them? I said, well, yeah, he, he did say that. He also said through his apostle that if a man will not work, neither should he eat. (laughs) And so some people are poor, so to speak, because they don't want to work. Now, there's a difference between someone who won't work and someone who can't work. And that's where your discernment comes in. And as Jesus also said, you will always have the poor with you. But we're not to shut our ear towards the poor. And I'm grateful for many of you who give to the food pantry with goods and work there. And we've gone from 130 or 40 families a month to 600 families a month. And uh, the, the needs are phenomenal and people are coming who met one individual who said, I never thought I would be in a food pantry in my life. I gave to food pantries. And I fear as the year may go on, it may get much worse. I am so excited and grateful for you guys who gave over 2,000 boxes to poor children that will not only get something that they would otherwise not have, just basic things that we take for granted. When we first started going to the Ukraine, we met people who'd never had a toothbrush in their life. That's what 70 years of godless communism does. 
And there are people who are so poor, they're just so grateful for it, but they also hear the gospel. So thank you for that. I commend you for that. So three there, God cares about the poor, and he commands us to have a compassionate heart towards them, lest we also cry and not be answered. God sometimes, through our lack of compassion for people in need, will allow us to reap what we have sown, Galatians 6, 9. For if we are silent to people's needs, God may arrange it so that we will not be heard in our time of need. It's a form of his discipline. If you, and he disciplines us, of course, because he loves us. If you make your own needs known, which you should, Philippians 4, 6, but at the same time ignore a known need that has brought, been brought your way, then by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return, which is the context of Luke 6. Given, it will be given on to you. It's, it's not so much just a promise in giving to the Lord's work, but giving to people who are in need. This principle of having an uncaring attitude is also highlighted in the marriage relationship where the husband whom God has privileged to be the leader has abused his leadership and not caring for his wife. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 7, you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. A godly husband does not merely share the same roof with his wife, but he truly lives with her in an understanding way. Um, Katanosis is the Greek, literally means according to knowledge. You live with her according to knowledge. You buy um, a new boat and you pull out the owner's manual and you, you study all the bells and whistles because you want to live with that boat according to knowledge. Well, God says, live with your wife according to knowledge, for he knows what her needs and wants and desires are, the godly man, uh, and when he does, he can better meet those needs. God reminds us that a husband is not necessarily stronger spiritually than his wife when he speaks here of a weaker vessel, but generally speaking, he is stronger physically, and so he is to show her honor by appreciating her feminine nature and to respond accordingly. Interestingly, you know, we, we, we spend a lot of things on the weaker vessel, and there's some legitimate applications to much as what is said. But to put it in the context of the first century when Peter writes this letter, it was an abusive attitude for many men to, t to use their wives like a mule, almost like a slave, to depreciate her as a human, and yet physically she was a weaker person and couldn't do some of the things that a man can do. And look, it still happens today. Maybe you don't call her a mule, but I've seen husbands dump on their wives physical responsibilities that God didn't really make them for. And eventually they wear out. When a husband, number nine, expects more from his wife than is appropriate, then he is showing her dishonor. You know, and again, sometimes it may be a, like a legitimate thing that needs to be done, but she's got so much on her, she can't do anymore. And when we have those expectations, we're showing dishonor, and his prayers are going to be hindered. While it is assumed that husbands and wives will pray together, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, 
He talks about coming apart physically for a time of uh, prayer to seek God's will as a couple. So there's assumptions in a verse like that that husbands and wives pray together. Um, while it's assumed they'll pray together, a husband's personal prayer life is indexed by his care for his wife. That's sobering to think about. God intends the relationship of a married couple to be, uh, to be a very powerful display of the love that Jesus Christ has, has for His church, which is why the devil does all he can to come between a couple and to make them at odds with one another. I mean, if, if the marriage is supposed to be representative of Christ's love for the church, and that's not being seen in the marriage, the devil's got a victory. Our marriages need to be as such that when an unbelieving world looks at our homes, they see something different that they can't produce on their own. And it opens up opportunity to share the good news with people. So there's a real spiritual battle that goes on, and, and it's one in prayer. D, impure motives can hinder our prayers. Impure motives. James reminds us, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. By nature, we are self-serving and self-centered, sinful. And so it is very important that when we make our needs known to God that we always defer to His will. It has well been said that the purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. Sadly, sometimes prayer can be used as a cloak to hide one's true desires. Over the years, I've heard Christians tell me, but I prayed about it, and so they use this as one of their biggest excuses to have their own way. Instead of seeking God's will, sometimes in prayer, with wrong motives, we can tell God what He is supposed to do, and we get angry if He does not respond. Sometimes a Christian can make a legitimate request to God in prayer, but the motive with which they make it is illegitimate, and so God chooses not to answer. James reminds us that if we are just concerned with only our own pleasures and not about other people's needs or God's glory, then God may not answer. So motive is a big, big issue when it comes to seeing our prayer answered. You can have a legitimate request, but ask for an illegitimate motive, your own glory, ignoring other people, your own pleasure, not really for the glory of God, and so God doesn't answer. E, not asking God through prayer can hinder our prayers. You may see that's, that's obvious. Well, maybe not as obvious as we realize. Perhaps the greatest hindrance to answered prayer is unasked prayer. Once again, James reminds us, you do, not you do not have because you do not ask. And if you do not ask, then you will not receive. Contextually, James is dealing with Christians who are prayerless, and the reason they do not pray is because they have let worldliness capture their hearts. Hey, look, a guy who goes home every night and all he does is sit in front of the TV and watch movie after movie, and he fills his mind with trash, and he has a, a compromised um, music standards, and on and on and on. He's not going to be a prayerful person. He's just filled his heart with dirt. 
and he short-circuited the work of the Spirit of God in his life. As a general rule, the more intimate your fellowship with God, the more you will pray. And the corollary is true. If you're out of fellowship with God, your last thought will be to pray. When your heart is out of tune with God, then you will not pray because worldliness always leads to a prayerless life. The greatest problem of prayer is not unanswered prayer, but unasked prayer, and it is unasked because one's life is out of sync with God's will. Kind of gets back to the same principles that we've seen expressed in different ways. As a general principle, God does not give to us unless we ask. And so if we are seeing little happen in our life for God and for his kingdom, and almost certain is because we have asked for so little. Until now, Jesus said in John 16, 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. That's kind of an interesting statement that Jesus makes. And it's a pre-Pentecost statement before people are born again. Old Testament saints were not born again in the sense that we are. And again, Jesus can say of John the Baptist, there is never a man born of a woman greater than John, but he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. Because John dies on the other side of Pentecost. And so the inclination was not to have this intimacy with God where you walk in his ways and you do his will, because you didn't have a regenerate heart, you had a heart of stone. So I suppose these five reasons as to why God does not answer our prayers can be summarized in one word, unbelief. It is faith that pleases God, and if our prayer life is wanting, it simply is a reflection that our spiritual life is deficient because we are not living by faith. And the writer of the Hebrews, of course, says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By the way, that's a verse often misinterpreted, that he is, meaning he exists. That's a given in Scripture. That, he's, that he is who he says he is. That he is God Almighty, the all-powerful one. That he is, and therefore he is able to do that which we bring to him. So that brings us to Roman numeral number six. How should we pray? How should we pray? Prayer can express itself in many different ways, in many different contexts, with many different people, and potentially with many different expressions. So number one, we should pray corporately. In Acts 2.42, shortly after Pentecost, we see an expression of corporate prayer. We read, then they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Corporate prayer is an important part of the life of the church, just as much as sound doctrine is, the apostles' teaching. And that's reflected in the New Testament letters, right? As reflected in the apostles' teaching and as much as fellowship. That's pretty important, isn't it? And the breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper. It's used in two ways, of course, in the New Testament, sometimes of just a meal, but in this context of the Lord's Supper. Those are all essential to a healthy church. And he adds to that prayer. It's actually plural prayers 
in the Greek New Testament. Throughout the book of Acts, we see corporate prayer. I've given you some examples there from three texts. When the Lord taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, and not my Father who is in heaven, showing us of our need for corporate prayer. There's an assumption that we will pray corporately. We pray corporately here on Wednesday nights. We pray corporately every time we gather for worship. You pray corporately in your adult Bible fellowship classes. The leader in the Awana group leads the children in corporate prayer. And on and on in your Bible studies, in your homes, in your families, corporate prayer. The same Holy Spirit who dwells within each believer, Romans 8, 9, that's a mark of conversion, makes us not just individually, but corporately the temple of God. First uh, Corinthians 3.16 is often a verse taken out of context. I mean, I think it's a legitimate application, but we miss the context and the richness of it. Um, he says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, and it's plural you? If any man, any person destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. He's talking about the church, and he's giving a warning. If someone comes in and tries to destroy God's church, God's local assembly, God will destroy that person. Now, we apply it, well, you know, if I suck on a cigarette and, you know, I destroy my, you know, that's a legitimate application. Um, but don't miss that he's describing us as a temple of God while there are individual expressions. Most of the time in the New Testament, when the temple of God is expressed, it's described as the people of God in a local fellowship. We are the temple of God. Under the old covenant, God had a temple for his people. Under the new covenant, God has a people who are his temple. But corporately, the temple of God, and so we are joined together in a unique bond of fellowship found nowhere else. Isn't that true? I mean, when you meet God's people, wherever you go in the world, there's just an affinity, there's a kinship. You've known them for two minutes, and you feel like you just love them and you're brothers, because you are. That's the way it works. Since we are joined together, God expects us to pray together. For corporate prayer edifies and unifies us as we share our common faith, Galatians 6.2. When teaching us about church discipline, Jesus taught us a principle of how essential praying with others is and not just alone by oneself. He makes this statement in Matthew 18. It's in the context of church discipline, but the principle applies broadly. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who's in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. These verses show us that corporate prayer can be as small as two or three of Jesus' followers at a time. Or, as like in Colossians 4.2, it might be the entire church. Colossians 4, Paul asks the whole church to pray for him. Um, he wants us to know that there's real power when there is agreement in prayer. And his promise when we exercise corporate prayer is that he is right there in their midst meaning he is close to everyone and not just to the leader. And you sense that sometimes if there's a spirit-filled congregation and, and there's corporate prayer going on. 
just sense the Lord's here. He's met us. And there's just an unusual thing that happens. And his promise, when we exercise corporate prayer, he's right there in our midst. Number 11, when we pray corporately, agreeing with each other, we are cooperating with God to bring about his plan, not trying to bend him to do our will. While it would be wrong to conclude that when two or three are gathered to pray, that we receive some kind of magical prayer power boost, (laughs) nonetheless, there is a consensus of faith that can take place in asking God for his will. And that's why when we have the Wednesday night prayer meeting, for instance, and maybe you've been asked to pray, you shouldn't really be thinking about what you're going to pray when you're sitting in that chair and someone else is at the mic, you want to be thinking, well, that person is praying. And it might be the same in an adult Bible fellowship where there's conversational prayer going on. And the leader says, I want three of you to pray, Josh, David, Mike. Don't think about what you agree with the person. Just agree with them in your heart. That's important. Corporate prayer is important because it creates unity. And of course, Jesus taught in John 17, that's one way the world will know that he was sent from the Father. When there's a unity amongst not the liberals with the conservatives, but amongst those who are truly born again. And it is the vehicle to carry each other's burdens. Galatians 6.2, right? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. To show our love for each other. Romans 15.30. And as we have our corporate needs met. And so, therefore, let us, not let me, let us, corporately, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's an assumption there of corporate prayer. Again, you can apply it individually, but he's addressing the corporate need of the fellowship. But with that said, we should also pray individually, right? We should pray individually. Number one, in the early church, we find examples of both corporate prayer and individual private prayer as modeled by the disciples. So Acts 4, we studied that a few weeks ago. Remember, their lives are threatened, and they come together, and what do they do? They begin with praise. They recognize who God is and His greatness, and and as they focus on who God is, they're able to ask Him to do what their need is. And remember, the place was shaken, and God said amen, and that was corporate prayer going on. Christ, by example, taught us our need to spend time alone with God in prayer. In Mark 1, in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a secluded place and was praying there. We read in Luke 5, 16, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Now, often is in italics here because it's not included in the original Greek New Testament. And it's added by the translator, in this case, not just to smooth out the English, because that's implied in the Greek verb, that Jesus habitually, over and over and over again, often would slip away to the wilderness and pray. That's a challenging verse. Could that be said of us tonight, that we often slip away to pray? It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. In his sermon given on the mount, 
Matthew 5 through 7, right? Jesus taught that the real test of your prayer life is not what you do in corporate prayer, but what you do in your individual prayer life, lest we be guilty of the religious Phariseeism that he condemns. I just printed out one of those verses for you because I would have had to go over to another page at the end and run out of space. Um, and I didn't want to print a page with one verse on it. But let me read the verse. That was my logic behind it. You don't know what goes into these handouts. In, Matthew, um, in Matthew's gospel in the sixth chapter, of course, he addresses three things that we can do hypocritically to be seen by men, prayer, fasting, and giving. And interestingly, all three also have public expressions where people give publicly, pray publicly, and fast publicly. So he's not discounting the public expression of any of those. But he says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the streets' corners. Nothing wrong with standing in the synagogue to pray. Nothing wrong with taking your prayer out into the public to pray, unless it's so that you may be seen by men. Because again, there are examples of these in Scripture. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. That's their full reward, the praise of men. But you, here in your handout, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. Your Father who sees what is done will reward you. What a great promise. If we pray only to be seen by men, then we have become a religious exhibitionist. If you want to discern if your public prayer, praying is legitimate, then a good starting place to ask is, what is my prayer, private prayer life like? The only time you pray is, you know, in an ABF or on a Wednesday night or some public meeting, and you're not practicing private individual prayer, then you're religious exhibitionists. You're no different than the Pharisees. It's not wrong to pray in public, unless the only time we pray is in public, and then we are guilty of the pharisaical hypocrisy that Jesus warned of. When Jesus said, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret, he's admonishing us to have a place in order to close out the onlooking eyes of men to the eyes of God. You need to do that. You need, we all do. That just needs to be a, a practice. You've got a place maybe in your home. When I built my office over here, I built it with a prayer closet in it. And I've got a place in my home like that where I can just totally shut out the world. In my home, it's literally in my closet where I hang my clothes and I go in and I get underneath my clothes that are hanging on the rack above. You just need a place like that where it's just no one who can see you but God. Balance in our private prayer life should not be taken to extremes because if all our praying was to be kept in secret, then we would have to give up all church worship services, all prayer meetings, and all family prayer. Your inner room might be outside as it was often for Christ or on a rooftop as it was for Peter, remember, in Acts 10 or in your automobile during your lunch hour, or in a literal closet. The real test of your individual prayer life is not what you do in public, but what you do in private. And so Jesus taught we need a place
to pray secretly. We should pray thoughtfully. We should pray thoughtfully. Jesus taught that hypocrisy in prayer is not the only sin to avoid in prayer. For he also wants, us, wants our prayers to be meaningful and not mechanical. Hypocrisy in prayer is a misuse of the purpose of prayer and that it diverts the glory of God to man, just like verbosity is a misuse of the nature of prayer and that it degrades prayer from something personal to the mere resuscitation of words. So those are the two highlighted sins in the Sermon on the Mount, hypocrisy and verbosity. So let's talk about the latter. Jesus taught our prayers need to be thoughtful when he said in Matthew 6 and in verse 7, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. The verb translated meaningless repetition, it's one word in Greek, is a Greek verb meaning to stammer. To stammer sounding a little bit like our English word for babble. And so in the original Greek, it has a sense, blah, 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 blah. Really, it does. You know what onomatopoeia is, right, in English? And well, it's very similar here in the Greek New Testament. Please understand the Lord Jesus is not prohibiting long prayer, for we have noted how on one occasion he prayed all night. We just read that in Luke 6, 12. Neither is the long Lord Jesus prohibiting repetitious prayer. For he himself repeated himself three times using the same words in the Garden of Gethsemane. We read, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Clearly what Jesus is condemning is meaningless prayer, where one prays without thinking, someone who is all lips with no mind or heart. Sometimes modern expressions of vain repetition might be seen in reciting the rosary, like in Roman Catholicism, you know, where you've got your beads and you just blurb off the prayers. Ten Our Fathers, twelve Hail Marys, three acts of contrition, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and it's almost mindless. Or in weekly liturgical prayers in Protestantism, some churches are liturgical in nature, the Church of England was a liturgical church. They were a, a blend between the Reformers and Roman Catholics. And so King Henry VIII, because the church wouldn't grant him, I think it was his fifth divorce, he said, I'll start my own. And I'll get my own pope, and we'll call him, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he got what he wanted. Well, in either case, that's not to say that it's totally an apostate church. It is today, the Church of England. There are some rare exceptions of Bible-believing churches in the Church of England. And in this country, the Church of England, of course, is the Episcopal Church, which for the most part is apostate today. They affirm uh, in official capacity, all kinds of heresies and abominations to God, but there are some bright exceptions here and there. And of course, most of these people who have um, been in these churches who are conservative have left the Episcopal Church and have joined another communion. When I was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, I used to go into a little chapel to pray. It was called the Chapel of the Cross. 
And I would go in there. The doors were always opened. It used to be that there were certain churches. The doors were always opened. You could go in anytime, 24 hours a day. We don't do that anymore in America. But uh, every Catholic church, every Episcopal church, and some Protestant churches, the doors were always open. You could go in anytime and pray. That's what it was like when I was a child. So I would go into this place. I was a missionary there at the University of North Carolina. I'd pray, and occasionally I'd meet this Episcopal priest. And I'd start talking to him, and uh, this guy doesn't know the Lord. But I hope God will give me an opportunity. And one Friday afternoon, I will never forget it. I was leaving campus, and it was just like I could not leave campus until I went by that church. Now, I'd never gone by at the end of a day, and, but I just felt compelled to go there, and sure enough, that priest was there. And I walked him through a little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. I had asked him the diagnostic questions. He was not sure that he would go to heaven. And he bowed his head, and he received Christ. And he became the archbishop for the entire North American communion. And God used him and has used him in a mighty way to bring people into the kingdom. But you see, in those liturgical churches, you know, something said and the people just wrote, you know, this is the word of God. Everybody says, thanks be to the Lord. Okay. If you've said that thoughtfully, fantastic. I was in a Episcopal church for a funeral, and they read the Book of Wisdom, which is not a canonical book, but it is in the 39 Articles of Faith of the Episcopal Church. And they said, this is the word of the Lord. And everyone mindlessly said, thanks be to God. And I said, that's not the word of God they just read. That's the Book of Wisdom. And so sometimes people just routely, and I'm not judging them because some of the prayers in the old um, common book of prayer were very rich and no doubt written by godly men. But when there's no biblical definition to the words like the Apostle Creed, they're just mindless words. And people don't really know what they're saying. And it can become vain repetition. Number nine, that was a little side note I got off on too far. I got to finish here. We also can be guilty of vain repetition in some of our evangelical churches where we are known for our extemporaneous prayers, that we can lapse into mere religious jargon, no heart like God bless the gift and the giver. And the offering's done every Sunday, the same deacon. God bless the gift and the giver. God bless this food to our bodies and your bodies to thy service. Amen. Well, I'm not judging someone who says that they could say that with absolute heart. Only God can read the heart. But we want to be careful that it's not mindless, that what we're saying, we're praying from the heart thoughtfully before the Lord. Sometimes our prayers are thoughtless if we're trying to impress God by the language of our prayer, or man, I suppose, or the length of our prayer. You know, I tell people on Wednesday night, I said, this is not the place to catch up on your prayer life when we pray at the end. Occasionally, some Christians are almost nervous when they pray, using God's name as a punctuation mark. 
as we would speak to no one other living person. I had a young man in a Bible study I was teaching at Duke University. He was like this. His prayer was kind of like this. Oh, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we can come into your presence, Lord. Lord, we need you today, Lord. Lord, will you help us, Lord, to live for you today, Lord? Well, would you speak to another person like that? No, you know, but it's kind of maybe a nervousness. I said, hey, stop for a second. I stopped him right in the middle of it. He said, what if I said to you, Fred, I, I'm glad, Fred, you're here today. Fred, you know, you, know, you know, I just repeated your name. I said, slow down. Think about what you're praying. You're, you're coming to God Almighty, and it's okay. Just, just slow down a little bit. And after he prayed normally, he said, I think that's the first time I've ever really prayed in my life. To sum it up, Christ is forbidding his people to be involved in any kind of prayer where the mouth is running, but where the heart is not engaged. We should pray persistently. In Luke 11, 5 and 8, uh, let's turn there for a second. Luke chapter 11. I didn't print out some of these verses. Luke 11, 5 and 8. He said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and said, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Verse 8. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give to him as much as he needs." So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, I, now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil know how to give gifts to your, good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And of course, that's a pre-Pentecost statement. Now, look on your handout. In Luke eleven five 5 to 8, Jesus taught us of our need to persist in prayer when He told us the parable of an annoying neighbor and a reluctant friend. And I gave you some other parallel passages where the same theme is taught. The Lord Jesus paints the picture of a tired and selfish neighbor who does not want to be bothered, but he finally decides to get up and meet the needs of his annoying friend. For Jesus wants to show how different God is. The reason we are not bugging God when we pray is because we are his children. We're not just neighbors or acquaintances or even just friends. We're family. We're his sons and daughters. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. Likewise, our Father is not like the man's neighbor, for he never sleeps or gets impatient or irritable, and he always delights in meeting the needs of his children. Persistence for the bothersome friend paid off, and that he annoyed his neighbor so much that the neighbor responded, but God is not annoyed, for he cares deeply. It is in this context of knowing that God is eager to respond that he tells us to keep on asking, seeking, and knocking. Jesus is teaching persistence in prayer. Even if our prayer has not been answered in the way we might expect, 
We must rely upon God to answer in his own perfect time. God uses persistent prayer to develop a deeper reliance and trust in him, which will bring out a deeper sense of gratitude and humility in us, right? I mean, sometimes you pray for something, God answers it, and you don't even thank him. I've done that. But when I've prayed for something for a month or two months or two years, and God answers, wow, how much has God done in my life and how grateful I am for what he's done. We should pray at times with fasting. Now, if you have physical issues, and I, I get that, okay, so... Um, just take that into mind so you don't come up after and say, well, I'm a diabetic. And, you know, I, I get it, okay? Comparing the many passages that address fasting, we can define fasting as going without food for a specified period of time for a spiritual purpose. The Lord Jesus took it for granted that fasting would have a place in the lives of his followers as he taught in Matthew 6, 17 and 18. Again, in this chapter, he teaches three things that should have a private expression. They can have a public expression, but they should have a private expression. But you, when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Today, we lay a lot of stress on prayer and sacrificial giving, yet there is very little attention given, given to our need to fast and pray. When you study those who fasted in the Bible, you discover several reasons to why people fast, included to humble oneself before God, to intensify your prayer life, to help discern God's specific will, to express repentance before God, to seek God's help for an impossible situation. That's just a handful of examples. And if you want to study this, um, listen to my message in Daniel 9, uh, where Daniel prays and fasts, and I do kind of a side sermon on fasting. The above passages remind us that fasting can have a corporate expression or it can be done in secret, not for the praise of men, but of God. F, we should pray expectantly. Pray expectantly. The Lord Jesus promised in Matthew 21, 22, all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. But how do we get this faith to believe? Expectant prayer is not trying to work yourself up into a certain state of mind because God does not require you to have great faith, but to have faith in a great God. For that reason, Jesus promised. And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, why couldn't we cast out this demon? Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. The faith that we must have has more to do with the quality of faith than with the quantity of faith. For Jesus said, faith is small as a mustard seed. And in Mark 4.31, one of the parallel texts, he calls it the smallest seed on the soil. In fact, the King James renders it the smallest seed on the earth. And people do all these mental gymnastics with it. And, oh, it's the smallest seed in Israel. It's the smallest seed on the earth. 
I should have brought it in. I have a little glass bubble, and in it was, is a mustard seed. But it's really not a mustard seed. It's the mustard pod. For if you broke that open, there's hundreds and hundreds of pieces of fine dust. And if it was a fresh seed, you could sprinkle that dust, and you'd see all these little sprouts. He's not saying it's the smallest seed in Israel. It's the smallest seed in this region of the world. It's the smallest seed that you guys know about. It's the smallest seed on the earth. And again, the focus is not on the amount of faith, but the object of your faith. Not the, uh, it has more to do with the quality of your faith than the quantity of your faith. For Jesus taught that faith as small as a mustard seed can accomplish great things if that faith is in God. It's like your eye. You have never seen your eye, but only a reflection of your eye in a mirror. I suppose you could see your eye if an ophthalmologist took it out and laid it on a table because it was, you know, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Even so, you cannot see faith. You can only see the evidence of your faith because faith always looks away to its object, the Lord Himself. What makes the difference is not so much the amount of your faith, but the object of your faith, which will grow through our exposure to His Word. And so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Learning the Bible shows us more what God is like and what He desires for us, which is the only possible way we can pray according to His will. This is one of our memory verses. This is the confidence we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. If we know that He hears us in whatever we have asked, then we know that we have the requests we've asked from Him. God grows our faith as we obey Him. For only those who walk in obedience can pray in the Spirit. That's, again, an underlying theme we've seen through this whole session. You have to be filled with the Spirit. No unconfessed sin, no hostility or unforgiveness towards someone else. Your heart has to be clear between you and the Lord. That's the only way you can pray in the Spirit is to be filled in the, with the Spirit. And that's the context of even Ephesians 6.18. It starts back in 5.18 with a verb, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he gives a series of participles all the way through the text into chapter 6, one being praying in the Spirit. So God grows our faith as we obey Him, for only those who walk in obedience can pray in the Spirit and learn more of what God is like which in turn allows us to believe and trust Him for even greater things. Why? Because if we obey, if we love Him, we keep His commandments. And what does He do? John 14, 21. He reveals Himself to us. So you're praying in the Spirit. You're able to pray in faith because you're learning what God is like. How do you learn what He's like? You're studying the Scriptures. And when you obey what you know, you grow, and God shows you more, and your faith grows. If you know you are abiding in Christ and you are praying according to the Bible, then approach God in faith, expecting Him to answer your prayer. I mean, there are some things you don't have to wonder about. You know it's the will of God because He said it in black and white. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Start praying specifically with faith-sized requests, which are expressions of your faith that are not so large that causes you to doubt if God will answer. You know what I mean by that? You're, you're praying, um, you want your next door neighbor to be saved. You think that old rascal, that two-legged, you know, 
reprobate. He seems like he'll never become a Christian. I don't have the faith to pray for him to get saved. So you don't really ask in faith. Well, what can you pray for in faith? Lord, I, I pray that I might be able to have a conversation with my neighbor. God answers it. Lord, I, I pray that I might have an opportunity to just share something that you've done in my life with my neighbor. God answers it. God, I, I pray that you might give me an opportunity for my neighbor to come into my home and to have a meal with us. God answers it. And God, I, I pray that you might give me the chance to take that neighbor through the plan of salvation. And I'm thinking in my mind as I say this of a man in our church who's a member of our church who was so hostile towards God when we met him that when we brought up anything, even slightly spiritual, it was a total shutdown. But for whatever reason, God burdened us with that neighbor, and he came to faith. So you start with faith-sized things that you can trust God for. What happens? Your faith grows. You're able to believe God for even more things. Praying for a particular person or issue in accordance with your faith does not in any way limit God, but it recognizes the size of your faith and what you can trust God to do, which will result in your believing Him for greater answers. Father, we, with the disciples, are asking you, teach us to pray. We know it's not merely theoretical for the child of God, but it needs to be a life experience, something that we just know that we live, that we breathe, because we're walking with you and we're loving you. Thank you that we can come to a throne of grace and we can lift each other up. We can pray corporately. And thank you that we can pray individually. And we just want to agree in this month of December that you would give us individuals. We have some family members we know that are coming to our homes that have never met Jesus. And we pray for opportunities to share the love of Christ with them. However small it may be, may seeds be planted and may seeds be harvested this month. May we care about the people who come on our campus, the folks we meet in our neighborhood in various stores. May we have compassion in our hearts and see them the way you see them, Lord Jesus. So many would she, as sheep without a shepherd, as people who are headed for an eternity without you. Thank you that someone cared enough about me to tell me of a Savior who died and was buried and was raised. Help us to do the same. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the incredible privilege of prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.